We'll go ahead and get started. I feel like this is one of those classes where it doesn't matter if it's 10 after or a quarter to or until you start talking, people will slowly start trickling in. So we'll go ahead and dive in, make sure we have the time that we need today. Um, do not restart my computer right now. No, please don't do that. <laughs> um, teacher's prerogative, though, I didn't know Pastor Randy was going to um, hit sovereignty so hard this morning, and it does feed into a lot of what we're talking about. Um, but a little bit of personal testimony and, and, and thankful and happy dad moment. Um, my daughter this last week, or had been previously, nominated for Make-A-Wish. Um, and we had that fulfilled on Friday. And she was getting a big outdoor play set. And if you, any of you remember looking at the forecast on Thursday, it was like 80% rain Friday, 90% rain Saturday. Um, and like we were like, this play set we've been waiting for for four months that she has no clue is coming. We're going to get delayed. It's not going to be here. We had family in town. And in God's sovereignty, um, as we hit this morning, to see that rain held back to where, at least in tea, we didn't get a drop of rain the last few days. And I know some of you need rain and you want rain, but I was very thankful for no rain. Um, but it goes back to uh, God's sovereignty over all things. It's, I, I want to sing joy and sing praise when um, it's something that I can recognize and put a finger to. Uh, look what God did and look how he made this special. But there's a reason my daughter was nominated for Make-A-Wish. There's a reason my daughter was granted that wish um, and for everything that she's been through in her young life um, and everything she will continue to experience throughout her life. And to look at that and say, there's a sovereign God behind that as well. Um, and for the, I even hesitate to say positive or negative because we don't know um, yet. But we do know God works all things together for those who are following him. Um, and who knows what the things and the medical condition she has will lead her to in her life and what she will learn from that and hopefully how God uses that in her life. Um, but it's just, I wanted to sing for joy. I wanted to shell, uh, celebrate and share with you and testify to God's sovereignty over the rain the last few days, um, but just tying it all together with uh, her whole experience so far. So uh, proud dad moment, or I should say happy dad moment, um, and just very thankful for, for what God has done the last few days. So that's my teacher's prerogative, my little uh, over-enthusiastic share that I, had to, I wanted to share with you all. But before we get actually started on our lesson, uh, let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll dive in. So, uh, dear Heavenly Father, I do want to uh, just thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for the lesson that we've already received from Pastor Randy. Um, but even behind the lesson, thank you for you, Lord. Thank you that you are a sovereign God, that you do have everything in your control and in your hands, and the confidence that that gives us. Uh, Lord, I want to ask that you help us this morning as we look uh, again at conversion, as we take it from a different angle, as we pick up and look at it through a, 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 the next lens, so to say. Uh, just help us to pace correctly so that we don't fly through, but yet that we still cover things in a way that honors what you have told us and, and teaches what you have told us. And more than any of this, Lord, uh, the knowledge is what we need to get to the thing that really matters, and that is understanding how this applies to our life and how it applies to how we love you and follow you uh, and how we glorify you. So just help us to be diligent this morning. Uh, help us to be, uh, be impacted and be changed by what, what we're reviewing. We ask this in your name we pray. Amen. All right. 
Uh, I would hope, I was always disappointed when I did this question with youth group. It was like, what are we studying? And I would get nothing. Like, at first I thought it was just shyness. Like, youth group really just, you know, they're not going to just jump out and say, yes, we're studying conversion. And it was just like, oh, shoot, I really don't think you remember what we're studying. Uh, so hopefully you guys are a little bit more prepped. Uh, you remember that we are uh, studying conversion. We are going through Michael Lawrence's book on conversion Using it as, I don't want to say a rough outline, we lean on it pretty heavily, Uh, so if you are wanting to read it on your own, I would encourage you that. We have books. We have lots of books. I know Don said there's only a few, but if you would like a book, uh, recommended donation is $6.50. If you want to drop that in the bookshelf that's in the corner, if you want to put that off touring, if you just need to take one, totally fine. It's it's a um, goodwill donation for the book, but if you would like a book, feel free to come up and grab one after uh, to do so. We covered roughly chapters one and two last week. Uh, anybody remember what those two chapters were? The, the dichotomies, the this, not that statements that we reviewed? Can you think of those? We went through new, not nice, and then saved and not sincere. Uh, in new, not nice, we really just focused on how we don't just need another self-improvement. We don't just need to be made a little better. We don't just need to conquer this one thing in our life or have our marriage just a little bit more uh, easygoing. Uh, we need full transformation. Uh, we, we don't just need to tack on Christian mindset. We need Christianity. We need conversion. We need to be made new. How has that done, though, moved us to saved, not sincere? Here we really focused on God's act of saving us and we are saved by his grace, faith in that grace. We're going to get to the faith and repentance today. Uh, but last week was very much focused on it is God's grace that saves us. And it again feeds into what Pastor Randy was talking on this morning of sovereignty. We are blind. Blind cannot make themselves unblind. We are dead. Dead cannot make themselves undead. We need an action. We need a God to initiate that. Uh, we get this look at the other side of the coin today, um, but we have to have that foundation because the other side of the coin of what do we, how do we act, how do we respond, it loses, uh, it means something different to you if you haven't put that foundation on the sovereignty of God, if you haven't put that on the fact that God had to act in your life to make you capable of responding. And that was our safe, not sincere from last week. Uh, just in quick recap, uh, not quick, but just to kind of ground us in that again, I don't, I don't want to just glance over and say, remember, I always like to try to call us back to Scripture. So we were in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You don't need to turn there, but just to remind us, for by grace you have been saved through your faith, but for by grace you have been saved. As this is not of your own doing, not even as your own independent choice, this is not of your doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand which we should walk in. So this week, again, we're going to move to what one of those dichotomies, disciples, not decisions. If you are following along in the book, um, this is where we're going to camp. I promise that we try to get through two chapters in a week. And after the rushed pace we went last week, I went, there's no way we're doing that again. (laughs) So uh, we're going to slow down. We're just going to enjoy your time on disciples, not decisions. If you're following along in the book, we're skipping over healed, uh, or holy not healed. And we'll probably incorporate a bit of that in, but we won't spend near as much time as we're going to spend on uh, disciples, not decisions. So with that, let's go ahead and dive in. So sports fans... Favorite team, football, basketball, baseball, most people have a favorite 
team that they can call to mind, um, a team that maybe you spend a little too much time reading articles uh, and losing time of your day keeping up with or on the weekend. Um, think, why are you a fan of that team? Um, why, what made you start following them? What indoctrinated you into that, that fandom? Um, I was born into a Vikings household. Uh, I follow the Twins. I follow the Wild uh, pretty faithfully. But if I was to say, what is your biggest team? I would have to say um, a Vikings fan. And I just grew up with that. It was on on the Sunday. We watched the news. We paid attention to the draft. It was just part of what I grew up in. Um, But have you ever had to try to become a fan? Have you ever not been a fan, not just kind of had that natural fan intake um, and like, you know what, I'm going to go become a fan of something? Uh, college, college football is weird around here. Some of you are huge college fans, um, but I feel like if you were to go to a Lincoln, Nebraska, or if you were to go to an Iowa, you, you'd have a very different sense of what it is to be a college fan. So I never grew up a fan of college football. But I had friends that were huge fans. I had friends that grew up around Lincoln or in Iowa or other places around here that have a little bit more affinity for college sports. Uh, my family lives in Lincoln now, or part of my in-laws do, so I was bound and determined to get involved and try to be part of the conversation, and I was going to become a fan of the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Bad choice. Uh, I mean, this was only like four or five years ago, so I have no glory days to call back on. Um, but I decided to choose and be a fan. I essentially decided that I was going to try to make myself a fan. That was about five years ago, and I can say I maybe catch one or two games a year, maybe three if I'm lucky. Um, I don't have any clue who the position players are. Uh, like the Vikings, I could probably read you the whole 53-man roster and tell you who's next in line. Um, not so with the Cornhuskers. I have no clue who are recruiting this whole, I like college players are getting paid now, like over my head. I just not, not into it. But if you were to ask me who I was a fan of or who my college team was, I would say the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Now, for you, those of you that are big into sports and that are big fans, would you consider that kind of blase-faire fandom true fandom? Or would you be, like, offended that someone would claim to be a fan of your team if that was the kind of fandom they had of your team? Like, any, anybody a serious Cornhuskers fan? Just raise a hand. Any, oh, kind of, kind of. I'm not a fan. If you asked a true fan if I was a fan of the Cornhuskers, the answer would be like, dude, just don't, don't even claim it. Don't even talk about it. You're not really a fan. Yet, how, uh, for some reason, we approach conversion with the same kind of attitude often. Uh, and we find ourselves shocked and stirred that that kind of conversion is called into question. How many people are banking on a decision that they made at some point years ago in the past, but there's been no real action to even show or demonstrate that that conversion had any impact on their life? How many are comforted with once saved, always saved, which is, has a hint of truth in it, with no further explanation, though, of what that means, and think that because of a decision in a moment, a sincere moment, a sincere decision, a sincere call to action, that they are now saved, even though that has had no impact on their life ever since? I think it's a scary high number of people and the way we talk about it that have made that very prominent. Even within the visible church itself, we still tend to talk to our children this way. We still tend to offer uh, evangelism with little more than a decision and a prayer. And the scary thing about this kind of half-truth 
is that there is truth pieces to it. There are things we would want to affirm. There is a call to action that we are to make. Uh, There is the idea of when you have been saved, when God has saved you, you are saved. But when we present it in this kind of half-truth form, it almost inoculates people to the fuller message. It checks the box. You move on. You're done. And so anyone trying to speak into your life and say, hey, this isn't congruent. This doesn't line up. You're almost offended by that because I'm saved. So this tees us up for the dichotomy that we're going to talk about this week, which is disciples, not decisions. Um, as, as we already mentioned, the last two sections largely focused on God's initiation to us, God changing us, God making us new. Uh, but now, what, what is our part of this? So to, uh, to set us up, Mark 1, 14 to 15. I'll let you chart, uh, turn to this one. Mark 1, 14 to 15. I have tried to cut down on the like rapid-fire verses this week. We've we trimmed them out a little bit, so I'll try to give you guys a second to get to most of the passages we're going to read today. Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, very relevant to our topic this morning, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So the gospel of God, and how is that summed up? And saying, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, then what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus calls for two actions and those um, to those whom he's uh, sorry. Jesus calls for two actions from those who he has and will save. Another way of putting it is repentance and faith. Repent and believe, and repentance of faith. And that's going to frame up the rest of our lesson today, starting with repentance. Go ahead and start turning to Acts twenty six. In here, if you if you're following with me. Um, Mark, we heard from Jesus, and Jesus is called repentance, but we also get uh, brought along on this repentance journey quite a bit from Paul. And so the one verse we're going to look at from Paul is when he speaks on Acts 26, 20. Acts 26, verse 20. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and then throughout all of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And what did he declare? that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. We see from these verses that repentance is just the natural outflow of conversion. If you have been converted, what is the first call to action you have been given? Repent. And so how we're going to go through this, uh, first for repentance and then from faith, we'll frame up first how we get it wrong. We'll look at a couple ways of when we say repentance, how does that get misinterpreted? And then we'll move on to how we'd properly or want to officially define repentance. So one of the first ways that we tend to get, or one of the ways that we get repentance incorrect is almost by making it a serious New Year's resolution. Uh, We're five months in. Uh, Anybody still on their New Year's resolution? Anybody still holding strong? Close, maybe? Okay, I, yeah. But New Year's resolutions, I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat better. Um, I'm going to try to get back to when I was 22 and wear those same clothes and do those same things. I'm going to fill in the blank. It's some self-improvement thing you're going to do. Unfortunately, we do the same thing, and we, and it's good in one sense, but we do the same thing with our sanctification. I'm going to stop lying. That's, that's what I need to do to repent. I'm going to stop looking at pornography. I'm going to stop drinking in excess. I'm going to stop gossiping. I'm going to start, stop neglecting my Bible and praying. And while all these things are good, and we should be doing these things, 
if that's what we've reduced repentance to, is repentance is just about naming the sin, repenting of it, and fighting it on your own will, we've minimized repentance. They're easy to pick on, but they serve as a perfect example, especially for those of us that have grown up in the church. Who were the best rule followers in Jesus' time? The Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees. They, they, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs because they looked great on the outside. They did all the things that are on your and my list. If we were living back then and we were trying to be good followers of God, their list, they were doing those. The, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. They nailed it better than anybody else was. Yet, they were called tombs because they were dead inside. They weren't saved. They, were, they took these tasks so seriously that it wasn't just, here's the rule, I want to follow it. It's, here's the rule, and I don't want to get within 10 miles of that rule, so here's the new rule. And they weren't doing that. So if gambling's bad, I'm not going to even own a deck of cards. If gambling's bad, I'm not even going to play board game. And then we go on from there. We tend to try to do the same thing of moralism and backing up away from these sins that we're trying to avoid. And we make it all about the sin that we're trying to overcome without really answering why we're trying to overcome it. We'll come back to the real reason later, but simply put here, be careful of simplifying repentance to not doing certain things or doing certain other things. Repentance is going to be deeper and more than that. There has to be a heart change behind the actions. The other thing we often confuse repentance for is guilt. If we feel guilty, we must be repentant. And I would say the guilt is a very real and useful feeling. Uh, if you spoke too quickly to your spouse and said something you shouldn't have and hurtful, you should feel guilty over that. You should have a twinge of your heart. If we are coasting and being lazy when we know we should be working or when we know we have more to give, you should feel restless. You should feel guilt. When we fall into sins that we've chosen to keep hidden in the dark, you should feel guilt for those sins and for the darkness you hide them in. These are appropriate places to feel guilt. But repentance moves past guilt to a change in action. And again, we'll get to that here in a second. It's possible to feel guilt and still love the sin you're feeling guilty about. It's possible to feel a sense of this isn't right and go, I'm still going to do that. I'm still going to choose that. I still desire that, and I'm okay with that desire. If you've been truly converted, you can't sit there. You can't settle there. Because as a converted person, as someone who's been made new, you earnestly seek after God's truth to help you change and repent of those wrong desires. A little bit of a tangent here that's not quite tied to repentance, but it's very similar to this. And it kind of touches on the, the chapter we're skipping, uh, the, the holy not healed. And that our culture has a very interesting way of trying to handle guilt. Uh, I think now more than ever, we are in a culture where you can self-diagnose all your problems better than any other time in history. Like, you are this. This is your personality. Go do an Enneagram test, which has its own issues. Or go do a personality test. Go uh, self-diagnose. You have ADHD. You have this. You have that. And you can find all the reasons for why you are the way you are. But then most of the time, the response to that, even your flaws, is to accept them. Yep, that's just the way I am. Or, yeah, I am just a little short-tempered. You just have to know that. You have to know that about me when you're dealing with me. It's not on me to change. We're living in a place where we can self-diagnose, but then we're told that we're okay. That's not the call of repentance. That's not the way that repentance deals with guilt. So it's not just feeling guilt, and it's not feeling uh, guilt and then handling the guilt outside of Christ. 
So what is at the core of repentance? Why do we repent? Why does being made new and being saved cause repentance? Because our hearts have been made to change what they worship. That made new process, when we are revealed to God as who he is, it really changes what our hearts fixate on. It changes what our hearts see as good and right. Repentance, uh, instead of worshiping ourselves and other man-generated idols, we actually have been made new, and our heart shifts what it gives its allegiance to. I like the way that Lawrence puts this. I'm going to read this quote from the book. Um, and it may take a second to get our minds around it, so I'll read it twice, but this is how he says it. Repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin, not the badness of our deeds, but the treachery of our hearts towards God. So repentance is being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the sinfulness of our sin, not only the badness of our deeds, but the treachery of our hearts towards God. There is a rebellion of our hearts that is the problem. That rebellion acts itself out in sin. It acts itself out in things that we need to repent of and things that we need to fight. And those things are still present once we've been made new, and we need to continue to fight those. But the core issue that has to be changed in order to fight those appropriately is the worship of your heart. Your heart is in rebellion to God pre-conversion, and it has no ability to do anything about it until God has made you new. So we're going to cross over into gospel message a little bit here, but I think, I think this is key. If, if there's 10 minutes, 5, 10 minutes that you're going to listen to, I, this has been instrumental for me in putting it in context. When we are made new, when God extends his grace to us, towards us and saves us, the only proper response to that has to be one of worship and thankfulness. When God is God and holy, and you're not, and you have no way of getting to him on your own, and the only reason that you're able to do that is because he acted first in your mire, in your sin, in your rebellion, in a heart that wants nothing to do with him, God has to wake you out of that first. When you understand that God came to you in that state and saved you for no other reason besides he chose to, how do you respond to that in any other way before I'd say thankfulness and worship? But in that response, it put God back in his rightful place as Lord. And we start to see his, his glory and his decree as right and good. So it's not just that God is good, it's that he's the definition of all things good. When we rightfully see God not just as Lord, but as good Lord, as the Lord who his, what he says is what is good, when, the Lord, when we see him as good Lord who what he wills and what he decrees is what's best for us, that is what motivates us and drives us. We rightfully see God not just Lord. We quickly see the areas of our life that don't align to the good Lord. God is good. He's my Lord. He saved me. Wait a minute. What he says goes, and then here's my life. <laughs> it doesn't line up. It doesn't match. So what do we do? We love this God, this God who saved us, this God who reached out to us. And so if you love someone, what do you do? You seek to please him. We seek to do the things that he says is right. It's not, a, it's not a legalistic, I am saved, therefore I need to do this. It is not, God saved me, now I'm going to go do this list of things to, because that's what I'm supposed to do. It's, God saved me, I see the beauty of it, I see the love in it, and how do I respond any other way to that person, to that being, to that God, 
than to want to go please him. Legalism skips over that love. And as guys and as different personalities, we maybe have different ways of the way we want to articulate that love. Some of us will view it as the father to a son or to a daughter, which is appropriate in some cases. Some of us will review it as a soldier who is following his loyal, loyally to his commander whom he loves, as what we are told when we're called to go fight our sin and act as if we are in a battle. Um, some of us might see it as um, Jesus as our brother. Like All these ways are described, and there's different times and appropriate, but at the end— The motivation for your repentance, the motivation for going and killing sin, comes from a love and a loyalty to the one who loved you first. But here's where the circle gets fun, and this is where I think it gets interesting. So, God, glory, you're not. He saves us. He bridges the gap. We then respond to that And we start following. We start repenting. We start seeing him for who he is. That dives us back into scripture. It dives us back into learning more about God. The more you learn about God, the more glorious you see him. The more awesome he is. The more holy he is. The more separate he is. And the more our sin bothers us. Which then drives us back to more actions and more good deeds. Which then drives us back to the word and growing in Christ and knowing him. And we're in this circle then of once you have seen God as Lord, once you start to pursue him, the only true result from that becomes the fact that you will get to know him more and more, which will drive you to more and more good actions, which will drive you to more and more recognition of grace, which will drive you to more and more love, which then drives you to stir you on to more and more good deeds. And you're just in the circle of sanctification. I think we skip that a lot of times. Um, especially coming out, like, I don't want to paint a broad brush, but I would say most of us here probably lean um, a little bit more conservative. We lean a little bit more biblically sound, which we should. I believe <laughs> those are the directions that we tend to lean, but the way we even talk about that is it's all about the moral actions. It's all about going and performing the right deeds. And I don't want to take away from that because we should be pursuing those right deeds. But if we skip over the need for the gospel first, if we skip over the need for God changing our heart and the loyalty that that provides to us, you have found yourself back in legalism. So if God has made you alive and he has made his good lordship clear and he's also made the glory of his grace clear, the only possible response to that lordship and that good lordship is that of repentance from where we've been and what we're doing and a desire to continue to grow in him. And then we're back in that circle of growing in him and continuing to grow in him. I want to pause here about halfway through before we keep moving, but does that, init- does that circle make sense? I-, I guess that's the main thing I want to make sure is, does the idea of going from salvation to love and joy and thankfulness and gratitude for that to a drive of your actions, which then gives you a great- greater, deeper uh, love for God, does that cycle that that builds make sense? <laughs> they won't be serious to serve a, a worldly master of cold because they lose one of six dollars in the So God is, is all interested in us really getting the really getting the worst part of the world. Mm-hmm. He's not really he's not interested in us doing it lukewarmly as a low trained Jewish person of first century today. Mm-hmm. He's interested in us doing it because from the heart we've been changed. Agreed. 
And again, we're, we're having to go so quickly through this, and we're not, I'll even come back to this at the end, but we can't get into all the aspects of the how and, and the tools that we have at our disposal. Um, but there are times for discipline. There are times for, I know I'm desiring the wrong thing. I know my heart is not where it's supposed to be, but I also know what God has told me, and I'm going to go do what God has told me. There's a place for that. There, there's a time for that. Um, there is a time, um, there, there's a place for your ambition. Uh, Paul was ambitious for God. There, there's a place for your, um, your action, and we are called to it, called to it diligently. There's warnings against inaction, um, but it has to come from a place out of love. And we assume, and that's what's so fun about a class like this, is this is assumed. The, your love for God is assumed. So when you hear a teacher or a Pastor Randy or someone else, and they're saying, go do this action, or the Bible says, go do this action, in a Bible, in a, even in the Bible, when it's a passage that doesn't fully lay out the gospel, there's an assumption of this is the underlying thing under it. So we can talk directly. We can say, brother, go kill your sin. Like, this isn't okay. Like, you need to go kill it. Go fight your sin. Go give. Be more generous. Why are you not doing, fill in the blank. There's a call to that, but at the core of that call, make sure you have the foundation of the gospel in love. I feel like a lot of times we make a call to action just for the action's sake. It's just that New Year's resolution. It's just that go defeat your sin. Why? Because you love the Lord your God. It has to be there. Uh, One quick association that we'll make right quick, Um, and that's the, the... the link, the very close link between sin and idols, so much so that we can almost make these synonymous, especially if we're talking about sin and repentance as a turn from your rebellious nature, your turn from your rebellious heart. Sin and idols become very much one and the same and synonymous. Um, when we are sinning, we are worshiping something else. We've said something else is more valuable than what God has said. Something else is of more importance and is truer and more solid and more foundational than what God has told me is right and what he's told me is wrong. That idol might be selfish ambition. It might be money. It might be lust. It might just be the worship of self in, in ease and lax. It may be another false god of another religion. Um, but there's something else that we have put in Lord of our life. In 1 Thessalonians 4.10, we're not going to read it. I'm a little worried about time, so I'll just kind of summarize for you. But one of the first things that you see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10, the Thessalonians, the sign of their faith comes, I believe, in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So one of the first things that we see as repentance, one of the true signs of repentance, is the turning from those things that we have put in God's place. Um, If you're curious what your idols are, uh, just a little practical exercise that we should always be doing, examine where your time goes. Examine where your money goes. Examine what you consider when making a decision. Um, Decision-making is one that I've struggled with the hardest. Um, I am a quick thinker that makes decisive decisions and then goes. I rely on logic. I rely on what I've been taught. I rely on common sense. I rely on things that are practical. I'm a good pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps Midwestern person in that sense. Where does God enter into that? Where do I pause and say, Lord, where are you in this? How are you directing this? Oftentimes, God gives us the facilities to use reasoning to do, to logic through what is right and what is wrong in the best in situation. But if there's no even acknowledgement of God in that, where are you, how are you making your decisions? So if you're wondering what your idols are, um, how do you make your decisions? How do you spend your time? 
We need to repent and turn from our idols. I will have you turn to 1 John. We'll close up this section on repentance. Um, there's two verses in 1 John that I want to look at. One is in chapter 1, so put one finger in chapter 1, 1 John 1, and then one finger in chapter 5. I do think I need both these. Again, I tried to remove just reading scripture and just going back to back to back to back, but I think this gives us two distinct pieces that are, that are important when we're thinking about repentance. So 1 John 1, verse 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins with the goal of repentance, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Then flip over to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be in the first three verses. 1 John chapter 5, just a few pages over. Everyone that believes Jesus is Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that our children, we love the children of God, when we love God and we obey his commandments. So what are we repenting to? We're repenting from sin, and we're moving to obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? Why is it not burdensome to kill your sin? Because it's easy? Because you love God. Because the motivation is because you love God. If you... My daughter is a lot of work. <laughs> she is a lot of work. And I have one. Many of you have many. Um, but it's not work. I love my daughter. Uh, God is a different relationship, um, but it's the same concept. All right, we spent quite a bit of time on repentance, but let's go ahead and switch over to faith. There's two parts of this, faith and repentance. Uh, we're going to follow the similar pattern for repent, uh, what we did for repentance. First, what it's not, and then what it is. So similar as how we can't see repentance as simply acting correctly, just going through the right motions, uh, we cannot see faith as simply knowing right things. Faith is not just simply knowing right things. In James 2.19, we've probably heard it before, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There's this idea of you can have knowledge. Uh, this is something I personally wrestled with. And man, ending on he will hold me fast, like I love that song because I think it speaks so well, at least to where I've been. But I grew up in the church. I grew up in this church. I've been here since first grade. <laughs> so like this, this is my church. I've had great teaching. Um, and other churches that I have spent a little bit of time in have had great teaching. Christian beliefs were always taught to me, and they've blessedly always made sense to me. Anytime I had a question, even on some of the tougher doctrines that we're talking about, such as sovereignty or choice and will, like, I was satisfied. I could get to a point where I was satisfied with the mystery and yet with what the Bible clearly taught. So what the Bible taught and the knowledge was never, never the issue. Like, is the Bible true? Very, very rarely did I have to ask that question? What I did sometimes doubt was whether or not I actually cared or cared to the degree that I actually wanted to live according to the factual knowledge. Temptations from sins, desires that I knew were contrary to what the Bible says is right and wrong, that I knew to be true, but I wanted to go do something wrong or sinful or wanted to live a way a different life or simply from being tired. Like, this is hard. Living for God is hard. Um, 
I was ready for a break. <laughs> I just, I remember sitting on the counter talking to my mom and going, mom, I just want to not care, but I can't not care. I just want to not put emphasis on this. I just want to not have to care about the things I know to be true. Thankfully for me, he will hold you fast. And that's why this song means so much to me. He held me fast. And he held it. He wouldn't let me reject. Even when I was sitting there going, God, I want to do this. I want not to know. He held me fast and said, you're mine. I remember that vividly, time and time again. And through prayer and through time and forgiveness, he would bring me back around. But there's so many people that that's not the end of their story. They, they grew up or they know or they had the factual knowledge and they just, it's, it's not enough. It doesn't impact how you live. It doesn't change the way one walks or talks or how they make their decisions or where they spend their time or how they give their affections. Um, faith is not simply knowledge. And it's a difficult, difficult temptation for those of us that have grown up in the church, especially good churches, because it's so easy to think and to puff yourself up with your knowledge. You have to have right knowledge. You'll never hear me downplay the need to be in your Bible, to be studying, to have the theology, to know what it says. But it has to go past that. It has to lead towards the living for Christ. All right, so faith is not just knowledge, but another thing to clearly state that faith is not is just an incantation of the right words. We won't spend long here because we've, we kind of talked about it last week with um, saved, not sincere, and we've already touched on it today with repentance. Um, but a lot of people turn Romans, a verse like Romans 10.9 into a magical incantation because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But what is belief? What is faith? Faith and repentance that we're talking about today. Um, people think because we pray a certain prayer combined with the factual belief we just referenced that they are set. If there hasn't been that automatic response of and continuing response of repentance and worship, it's, it has to go beyond that. It has to be true faith and true repentance. The last thing faith can get reduced to that we're going to touch on this morning is simply belonging to a faith community. Um, I think, again, we're, we're in a pretty sound church. We don't just reduce it to belonging to church on Sunday and coming on Sunday morning. But for many, that's still a very common comfort. You get the warm and fuzzies because you're participating. They're like, hey, yeah, I do, I do the church thing. Uh, I help out with Alana on Wednesday night. Maybe even I volunteer. Um, so I'm, I'm doing those actions. And, and I'm feeling good about myself for doing those actions, pat myself on the back for doing those things. Um, and so we get the warm and fuzzies and confidence in our faith simply because we belong to a church. Um, I think we probably have more problems the other way where people don't value the church enough. They don't value coming in and volunteering and giving their time, so I don't want to neglect that either. But if your confidence in your faith and your identity is becoming more from belonging to the church, even belonging to the people of God, than it does for actually belonging to God, if your identity is based in the people and not in God, we have something to talk about. We have concerns. So what is faith? Lawrence says real faith leans and depends and follows and works. Faith causes us to stop relying on other things, legalism, money, our own wits and willpower, idols, and causes us to change and put that faith in God, in the grace that he's given to us. If someone asked me what faith truly looked like, my answer would probably be nearly identical to what true repentance looks like. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in the grace? 
Well, what did we just talk to? What's the circle we just talked about? If you have faith in that grace and you believe in that grace, how do you respond? With love and repentance and good deeds that honor the one who saved you. True faith in grace given to us by God results in repentance, and then they feed each other. Repentance without faith is simply legalism. Repentance without faith is just you going and trying to do the right actions. And faith without repentance is simply having self-damning knowledge. Neither repentance or faith is true unless both are present. Pastor Randy's done this several times. Trust and obey. I sing this to my daughter. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But it's trust, obey. Those are one and the same. Pastor Randy smushes those together. It's not trust and obey. It's trust, obey. If you trust, if you have faith, if you believe in the grace that has saved you, you will repent and obey. I do want to acknowledge, though, that faith and repentance start in a moment. There is the idea of once saved, always saved here, if you have been saved. But they do continue to grow and mature throughout your life. Uh, The goal and source of assurance is the fruit along the way. Do you have faith? Do you have repentance? This is the self-examining that we do when we take communion, or what we should be doing more often than that. Are there areas of faithful growth in your life in the last year, in the last three years, in the last five years? Are there places in your life where you can clearly see God working and know you wouldn't be where you are now unless God had brought you to that point uh, through his power? I hate looking back five years ago and thinking of who I was five years ago. There's never a point in my life where I don't go, man, that was embarrassing. <laughs> like, like that, that was, that, was, that was off the rockers. But at some point, I, I hope that never changes. I, I should be looking back every three to five years and be going, I have learned something. I have grown in some way. Not through simply uh, self-help, not through simply treating Christian morality like we talked about last week, but because I am pursuing God and he is saving me and he is changing me and sanctifying me. So if your answer is yes, if you can see where God is changing your life, take joy, like take encouragement. Like that's the point. Like it's very easy to, uh, to go too far and question our faith because we're still struggling. And again, I never want to take the gas pedal off of the actions and taking and fighting your sin. But when you put it all on yourself and you start relying on yourself to conquer those sins and you've taken away the fact you're not saved because you've conquered sin, you're saved because God saved you and is helping you conquer sin as the result, you're going to be on shaky ground. So if you can see where God is changing your life, if you can see where he's working in you and you're working alongside of him, take encouragement. Are there still areas that are miles away? Heck yeah. (laughs) Um, But don't give up on the fight. I love this phrase, paraphrase from John Piper. Um, I don't know I'm alive because my birth certificate, because I have a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. I don't know I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. I don't know I'm a Christian because I made a commitment to Christ at some point in my life. If it was a true commitment, that happened. You were saved at that point. You were born with a birth certificate. That signified your birth. Your time of salvation was real. It happened. You can point to it. But the way you know that that time was sincere and true is because you're breathing. And what is breathing to a Christian? Repentance and faith. You don't know you're a Christian because you have a birth certificate. You know you're a Christian because I'm breathing. I know I'm a Christian because God is holding me to repentance and faith. And so the same verse that we go to during communion, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What is the test? Faith and repentance. All right, we're going to try to start winding down here um, a little early, but that was somewhat intentional. I figured if I gave myself less material, I would maybe slow down just a smidge. Um, Lawrence did have a bit more to say in this chapter about the role of the church. How does church play kind of a role in supporting your conversion and helping you? The good news is he hits it again and again in the coming chapters, so we'll definitely come back to that in the coming two weeks. Um, But I think the last caveat I want to end on before closing, and we touched on this earlier, but um, we have a limited time. We're, We're touching on faith and repentance today and the role that they play in conversion. What we didn't get a chance to dive into how does the Holy Spirit play a role in empowering faith and repentance? Because it's the Holy Spirit in you to work in the will to his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit empowers that through prayer. We didn't get to dive into the impact of prayer and, the faith and what it does for faith and repentance. We didn't get to touch deeply, as I would like, on how thankfulness um, is, and gratitude is the foundation for your faith and repentance. Um, probably a new hobby horse of mine that I'll hit on more and more. Uh, we have to stop at the grace and being made new and being saved by God leads to dependence, uh, leads to fa- dependent faith and the pursuit of holiness through repentance. So we get grace, we get salvation, we get faith, we get repentance, um, but we're skimming over a lot of the tools and a lot of the how. Please take time not to skim. <laughs> this is, again, I'm, I'm going to call you to actions, call you to deeds. We only have so much time. And as a perfectionist and as trying to teach, I have a hard time saying this is our focus today. I want to go give you the 20 layers that it's built on, and we just can't do that. So I encourage you, please go take a look at prayer. Go take a look at how the Holy Spirit acts in this. Please take a look at how often gratitude comes up as a, uh, as a source and the outcome of your faith. So the last thing I'll leave us on is I'm going to leave us on Scripture it's, it's a longer passage. I usually try to avoid just reading a chunk of passage without really giving uh, expository on it, but it's pretty self-explanatory, and I think it sums up the goal of faith and repentance or even the process of faith and repentance. So turn with me to Colossians 3. We'll end on this before we open up for questions. Colossians 3, 1 to 17, when we get there. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's the call. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being re- renewed in the no- knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. So then what? Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one another has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father and through him. What's faith and repentance? What does it look like? Spend some time looking at uh, Colossians 3 and many other places, but I just, Colossians 3, I feel like it sums up. If you, if you say you are in faith, if you have faith in grace, if you are living a life of repentance, what are we putting aside and what are we picking up through the power of the Holy Spirit and through our love for God? All right, we'll call it there. We're about nine minutes early, um, but I think that was a, hopefully a more helpful pace for us today. What do we have for questions? Any questions before we could just let, let you go early as well? All right, thank you guys.